Please open, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And we want to continue our study of this great epistle by continuing our observation of these last verses of chapter 2. Our section that we will focus on is verse 19 through 22, the fruit of reconciliation. But I should like to read from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. 11 through chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. The Word of God says... Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, from the beginning of this epistle, the Apostle Paul has been revealing the spiritual blessings that each and every person in Christ possesses equally. These incredible truths are the basis of the spiritual unity in Christ's church that he's been emphasizing and showing these first two chapters And we learn from that that there are no spiritual haves and spiritual have-nots. We're all spiritual haves if you're in Christ Jesus. There are no divisions of class or ranks in the church. All are one in Christ. We are equally elected by God. We're equally predestined. We're equally redeemed. We're equally forgiven of all our sins. We have been equally made spiritually alive. And according to chapter 2, verse 10, we are equally His workmanship. Hand, were the handiwork of God, each and every one who was in Christ Jesus. Pretty amazing truths. And as we just read in verse 11, we, we, in our section here, Paul focuses particularly on the Jew and Gentile issue. Because in the first century in particular, there was much hostility and hatred between the two groups, and we spent time looking at that in the previous couple weeks. But just to remind us that they really didn't like each other. There was real deep-seated hatred between them. And one of the reasons, as we learn from here, that the law of God separated the Jew off from the Gentile. So there was that spiritual separation that God's law did put up there. But then you couple that with self-righteous pride and, and sin nature, and then you have hatred, you have um, animosity, you have separation. And so this section addresses the reconciliation and the oneness that is in Christ Jesus between the Jew and the Gentile, which is 
quite amazing in itself because of the extent and the depth of the hatred. Now, why is he addressing this? We just throw this out. Perhaps in the church in Ephesus, these old prejudices and, and segregations were still there, perhaps, or maybe they were creeping back into the church, much like the Galatian churches where the Judaizers were coming and forcing the Gentiles to become like a Jew. Maybe that was what's going on there. Or maybe the, the, the Gentiles were seeing the, the Jews being set aside as a, as, a, as a sign of their superiority. And so perhaps that was what was coming back to the surface in this church. But Paul calls them, if you remember there in verse 11, to remember the things former. And he's saying that, I believe, to correct slash prevent the separations that were once there. Because in the church of Christ, there are no barriers. There are no divisions. There is just nothing but unity because we are equally in Christ Jesus. Now, so Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 11 through 22 is the unity in the church and particularly emphasize the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, Now, through the cross, as we learned from previous studies, Christ has accomplished this peace, this reconciliation, and has created from the two a new man, as it said there in verse 15, where he says, might make the two into one new man. Now, I remind you, from the two, Jew and Gentile, through the cross, Jesus Christ then has made one new man. Listen to Galatians 3. We've looked at this a few different times in the weeks past. But verse 26 would say it like this. Actually, it's verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? Not that those distinctions are obliterated in and of themselves, but the, the distinctions that kept you from God and your standing before God, those have been obliterated. So in Christ Jesus, through the cross, those have been erased. So that you're just one in Christ Jesus. And then I would go from there to Colossians 3, if you would, please. Um, just to see this again. Colossians chapter 3. From the same Roman imprisonment, Paul writes this. In verses uh, 10 and 11, just to see this, 310 says, And having put on the new self, who is being presently renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Verse 11, A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So that's, if you go back to uh, Ephesians 2, please. This is what Paul has been emphasizing and showing that Christ has accomplished through his cross, This, the two being made one new man. There's a new race of people because of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's no longer those different distinctions, but you're, you're either in Christ or out of Christ. You're either a Christian or you're not. Those are the two classes of people now. So then, that the two being made one, one new man, brings us to verse 19 through 22 in our uh, Ephesians 2. And now he shows us the purpose of reconciliation or the fruit of this reconciliation is what verses 19 to 22 will emphasize. And I draw your attention to verse 19, if you will. Notice here, Paul is coming to a glorious conclusion here in verse 19. He says, so then, or maybe more particular would be now therefore. 
In other words, in light of what was just said and in light of what was accomplished in verses 14 through 18, now 19 through 22 is what has come about. Since Christ has reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God through His suffering on the cross, both have access in one spirit to the Father. Therefore, all inequality between the two groups, as far as their standing in the sight of God is concerned, has ceased. And what follows here in our text, three metaphors that describe the oneness in the church. In verse 19, the first one he mentions there, that we are fellow citizens. The fruit of reconciliation is that we are united in God's kingdom. The second one of God's household, the fruit of reconciliation, is that we are united in God's family. And then the third one is found in the, the last three verses there, 20 through 22, where we are said to be God's temple. We are united as God's house. Jew and Gentile, in Christ Jesus, you are equally of God's kingdom, you are equally of God's household, and you are equally of God's temple. You are, you are united in God's kingdom, God's country, if you will. You are united in God's family, and you are united as God's house. Okay? Look at where he goes here in verse 19. And he starts here with a negative. But before we get there, remember how we emphasize grammar and observation here. 19 through 22, all the verbs but one are present tense. In the previous section, 14 through 18, all the verbs but one are past tense, which is known as an aorist. Okay? Interesting, the shift. The emphasis in 14 through 18 is past what Christ has accomplished through His cross. The result of that is the present tense verse, uh, tense of 19 through 22. And present tense is ongoing, habitual, continual, right now, always right now, always going. Okay, Never ceasing. That's present tense. So when you come to verse 19, He starts by showing our, our union with the Jew and the Gentile by stating in a negative, look at 19, says, you are, present tense, no longer strangers and aliens. You are currently, you are continually not a stranger to God. Which is interesting because back over there in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we were strangers and aliens, right, to Israel, to God. But he says, he says it in a present tense in verse 19 in the negative. You are currently, continually not a stranger, which means you'll never be a stranger again. So here's just another way of stating eternal security with the present tense verb. Okay? And so we are no longer strangers to God because to be a stranger to God is to be unsaved. You were once a stranger to God and at home and a friend to the world, but now you are presently, continually a stranger to the world. It was, I think it was one of the words in the songs here, we were pilgrims sojourning. Hebrews talks about believers being sojourners. We are strangers to the world, but no longer strangers to God. And you are not 
a stranger, no longer a stranger in verse 19, to God. But then he goes to the positive. So he's because he does both sides, he's really emphasizing the habitual, continual reality of your life, that in Christ Jesus you are, verse 19, a fellow citizen with the saints. You are continually not a stranger, but you are, the second part there in verse 19, but you are, present tense, Continually fellow citizens with the saints. We are continually in God's country, in God's city, in God's kingdom to be a citizen. Once a stranger, but now a fellow citizen. The emphasis is joint, fellow, right? You are a joint citizen. You are a shared citizen. Notice it says there, with the saints, with the holy ones. Now the holy ones being mentioned here because it's talking about those who were once strangers. The believers in whom the Gentiles are fellow citizens with are Jewish believers. They're the saints that are being mentioned here. Okay, Fellow citizens with Jewish believers in Christ Jesus. Um, we are for a fact continually, constantly in this state of fellow citizens with the saints. Philippians 3.20, Paul says it like this, we, our citizenship is in heaven, right? We have a shared citizenship, Jew and Gentile, united in Christ, one. We have a joint citizenship. My papers say citizen of heaven, It says, citizens of God's country. It says, stamped, and it says, fellow citizen with the saints. And it's fixed. And it's present tense. And and remember, this really grips me, and I hope to share it with you. But to be in the present tense is to say it's a continual, habitual, ongoing reality. It never will not be that. I will never not be a stranger to the world. And in contrast... I will always be a fellow citizen with the believers, right? Talk about eternal security through grammar. I like that, (laughs) right? Um, A fellow citizen of heaven. We are citizens of God's city, of God's country, of God's kingdom. Um, And just like any other citizenship, we have privileges and rights that aliens don't have. We, We have... All the rights of citizenship. We have equal rights and equal privileges. In fact, earlier in this book, us Gentiles are also called saints. We are holy ones. Not in, not in practice, <laughs> and certainly not in nature, but by position, by grace. But we will soon be, when we see Jesus face to face, I will be holy without sin. Yeah? But right now, it's so certain he can call you a saint. And every believer in Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion is set apart by the Spirit. In fact, that's what holy means, right? To be set apart. The Spirit comes, takes this person, sets them apart from the world and sets them apart unto God. They belong to God particularly and especially. And so everybody who's in Christ is a holy one, is a saint, and it has nothing to do with your practice, nothing to do with your character, has everything to do with your union with the resurrected Christ. Right? That's good stuff. So there's other belief, beliefs that uh, do all this stuff with saints. That ain't right. Right? Does it, how about this? Those who know me most, like my wife. Isn't it true, love? 
I'm a saint? She has to think about it in a minute. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> It started at practice and then it quickly went to a position in Christ. Yes, you are. <laughs> we are all in position, fellow citizens with the saints, therefore called saints through Christ Jesus. We are holy ones. Uh, go to Colossians to the right there. Colossians chapter 1, please. Now, every genuine believer in Christ is a saint, as we've been saying, is sanctified in Christ, set apart by the Spirit. We are fellow citizens. And like we said, you know, the greatest privilege we can have, one of the greatest privileges, is to be a citizen of God's country, right? I'm an American, we're Americans, and uh, we treasure that. That's a, that's a glorious thing, to be an American citizen. But you know what? It is nothing compared to being a citizen of heaven, Right? Because our leader today, <laughs> uh-uh. But King Jesus, amen. Yeah? Okay. Just saying. Colossians, chief, we're all on the same page. Max, we're amongst friends. Okay. Colossians 1, look at verse 12. Look at what it says here. 12 and 13, just showing you. Giving thanks to the Father. Why? Who has qualified us. The Father has qualified us to share, participate, notice, in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, For He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us, transferred our papers from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Right? My paperwork now says, citizen of heaven, citizen of God. Okay? And it's God who qualified us for this. Gentiles and Jews alike is the emphasis fellow citizen with the same privileges and the same rights, okay? The same the same privileges of being in the kingdom. If you go to Romans 15 and I want to show you this because it's the emphasis you find out it's the emphasis of the New Testament kind of in a roundabout way, but the Jew and Gentile unity is a big deal. And how we would apply that to our day, we might not have issues with Jews, but we might have issues with others. Right? There's always, sin always rears its head and we don't like people of a different ethnicity, a different color, a different whatever, right? And churches fall prey to sinful leadership and sinful practices. I want to make sure we never get there and to see from the New Testament that we are one in Jesus Christ and we are fellow citizens of His kingdom. Amen? You talk about a melting pot, right? Is the kingdom of God. Right? The church of Christ is the ultimate melting pot. Every tongue and tribe and people and nation, right? Revelation 5, right? The whole nation, all the nations come to Christ through His grace in the gospel. In Romans 15, look at verse, uh, look at verse 7 here. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted who? Us. To the glory of God. And who's the us? He'll go to explain. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Who's that? Jews. On behalf of, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. That's the old covenant promises to the Jewish fathers. Okay. Verse 9. And for the Gentiles. See there. To glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Verse 10. Again he says rejoice O Gentiles 
with his people. His people there are Jews. So here is emphasizing Gentiles and Jews again together. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Verse 12, and Isaiah says, so this is all Old Testament looking to this Jew and Gentile together. There shall come the root of Jesse, of course that's Jesus, and he who arises to what? To rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Okay? Fascinating, right? Fascinating. Now with all that, please go back to our text in Ephesians 2. My point is this. That in Christ Jesus, the fruit of reconciliation, the fruit of the cross, is that Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus would be fellow citizens of the same kingdom, of the same country. Okay? His country. He goes on from there in verse 19. If you pick it up, look at the second of the three metaphors that speak of our unity. Look at what it says. And it says, and are of God's household. Not only are we fellow citizens, but we are, secondly, the end of verse 19, are of God's household. This is, we are united in God's family. We are united in God's family. And notice again, the present tense. It says there, and are. That's a to be verb in a present tense. Are Position, our condition is constantly, continually, habitually of God's household. You will never, once you are in there, you will never not be there. It's fixed. It's secure. He doesn't, he doesn't bring you in and then throw you out. Once he brings you in, he brings you in forever. You see? Because it's not based on you. It's based on his grace. It's based on his grace. And he has brought you into his family so that you are constantly, continually of God's household. Man, that's good stuff. Um, therefore, we can call God Father. I can do that by right. He's my daddy. <laughs> He's my daddy, right? Guess who's my brother? Jesus Christ is my brother. That's almost blasphemous to some people. But it tells me in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call me brother. And so you get over it. (laughs) You get over it. He calls me brother. And I call him brother. He's my elder brother. Is he not the church's elder brother? Yes, he is. Is he not, Romans 8.29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be what? Firstborn among many brethren. Wow. That's the goal of the cross. It's the goal of God in saving you is to make you like Christ so that Christ has many brethren. He calls you by His grace, brother and sister. We are equally, presently, if you're in Christ, you are in God's family. And God is your Father. And Jesus Christ is your brother, is the first Adam, is the, is the firstborn of many brethren. And how about this way right here? Are you not my sister? Am I not your brother? In fact, you're more related to me than my so-called blood relatives who are outside of Christ. When you came to Christ, your family just grew exponentially. In reality. In reality. And do you see? So Paul in Ephesus and his teaching here is he's, he's laying down the foundation of a spiritual unity that belongs to the body of Christ no matter where it meets. City Bible, here, Cross the river if they belong to Jesus Christ. You see, we are for a fact 
brothers and sisters. And the sooner we get after it and treat one another in that manner, instead of my kingdom, I'm so tired, I'm going to, this soapbox time, I'm so tired of, of churches living like they're the end all. Individual churches, they build a moat around their building and put up a 30-foot wall. And don't you dare come in there, right? No, no. We're going to fling open the gates to the church. We're going to fill in the moat with cement and grass. And we're going to burn the walls down and tell the world, come and see our Jesus. We're going to go out to the world. We're going to bring them in. If they want to come in, we're going to embrace them, right? Because as God saves them, they become our relatives. And when you came to Christ, your family grew exponentially. Exponentially. Didn't Jesus even tell Peter that? We, Lord, we, we turned away from our family. What do we get? <laughs> right? Jesus says, you get a hundred times more. I mean, think of how many, think of how much your family grew the moment God saved you. Right? I had two sisters. Right? Well, I got more than that right here in these rows. <laughs> right? This is what he's emphasizing, beloved. The church is so special. The church is so unique because it's God's design. It's God's people. It's God's blood that purchased, you see. So glorious. So glorious. We are for a fact, not only citizens, fellow citizens with the saints, but we are for a fact constantly, continually of God's household, God's family. Now, hold your finger here. Go to Matthew. Can we go to a few verses? We'll be back here. But go to Matthew 12. I hope that's just resonating in your heart. You are of the family of God, in case you've forgotten, right? In case you've forgotten. I mean, we got, we got Ruskies and Ukraines and Honduras and Okies, and, right? And we're related in Christ. I just love that. <laughs> Don't you like that? <laughs> this makes me happy. Um, let's see here. Where am I? Oh, uh, Matthew 12, sorry. 12, and look at verse... Um, Lord, 50. Look at 50. For whoever does the will of my Father, Jesus speaking, who is in heaven, guess what? He's my brother and my sister and my mother. Right? Jesus says that. Right? And to do the will of him is, is to be converted and to follow him. Right? That's who that belongs to Jesus. He's related to those people there. Um, go to Galatians three, please. Just before the text, we always end up at on, but in chapter three, verse twenty six. How is it that we become in this family here? Look at three twenty six. He says it like this: For you are all, and Jews and Gentiles are in this Galatians because they're at battle here. 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the means by which you entered the family. Faith. So anyone who possesses true, genuine, saving faith is indeed a child of God. And this is your family. Okay? Go to 1 John, please. 1 John, chapter 3. After Hebrews. Go to Revelation. You went too far because that's the end of your Bible. But first John three. Okay. Look at verse one of first John three. Notice what he says here. Glorious stuff. 
He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Notice the tense of those verbs in action. It's past, okay? That we would be called children of God. That's the expression of the love that He's poured out on them, is that they would be called, identified indeed, children of God, and such we are. What tense do you think we are is? (laughs) Yep, present tense. We are constantly, continually, habitually, right now, ongoing children of God. And it's an expression of the love of God the Father. Do you remember? Well, we should go there. Go to John 1.12 real quick. So it's through faith in, in Christ that one comes to this family as we're seeing again. But look at chapter 1 of the Gospel of John and look at verse 12. Okay? And it says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right the authority, the power, exousis is the word. It's, a, it's this right to become children of God, even as the rest who believe in His name. Right? God, Jesus gave the right to those who believe to be considered His children. Do you see what He's saying? Are there any rights and privileges that come with being a child of God? He gave you the right to claim them. He gave you the right to claim them. What are you talking about, preacher? Well, I'm glad you asked. Go to Galatians chapter... Um, actually, actually, hold on. Actually, go to Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8. Because we are all equally His children. And, and this is positional so far, what we're looking at. This is what we are by position, by grace. He set us apart and has made this declaration over us that we are children of God. Okay, Um, Whether you feel like that or not, that's not what he's addressing so far. It's a fact. It's a reality. Okay, Praise God, right? Because how many times do you not feel like it? Aren't you glad your security uh, is not based on your feelings? Right? Praise God. Um, Romans 8, though, look at this. I want to show here real quick here that... We have this privilege. Okay, look at chapter 8 of Romans. Look at verse 16. Actually, 15 and 16. Look at what it says. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, a disposition of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay? Now look at that real closely again in 15. The spirit, the second half, the the spirit of adoption is being contrasted with the spirit of slavery. The spirit of slavery, that disposition that I am a slave and not a child of God, puts me in a fearful disposition, the fearful of being whacked. Okay? That's being contrasted in verse the second half of 15 when it says, but we have received a spirit, a disposition of adoption as sons. Do you see where he's going with this? You are no longer slaves to fear God like this, but now you've been adopted as sons. Look at what it says. What is the evidence, what is the result of that reality of receiving the spirit of adoption in that verse? How do you know from me, how do I know from you that you have received the spirit of adoption? There's something happening there in verse 15. Speak to me. What do we do? 
we cry out what? Abba Father. Do you see? Evidence that you have received the, dis- the spirit of adoption, this disposition of adoption, which is all of grace. God comes to you through the gospel. He opens your eyes. He convinces you of, of your faith in Christ, of your love for Christ, that He loves you. He's died for you, buried and resurrected. He convinces you of that. And in the indwelling Holy Spirit, the aspect and element of that presence of the Spirit of God is that He's convincing you that he, you've been adopted. That you belong to God as a son. And what does it do to you from the inside? It causes you to address God of the universe as what? Abba, Daddy, Father. It's a term of, a, a, of endearment, familiarity of a child to Daddy, you see. Not just, oh, Father, who's far and transcendent and far away. Yeah, God is that. But the emphasis here, you're of His family. And the Spirit has come and he has, he has produced in His people this filial affection of a child for dad. And you cry out, Abba. Is that not glorious? Is it not true? Is it not true of your life? Isn't that true of the moment a person is converted, truly converted? Do they not have a heart change that now relates to God a little differently than they did before? It's no longer God, a strange God. I now know Him. I now know Him. And I say, Abba Father. Abba Father. That's Christianity. That's what Christ has come to do. Jew and Gentile crying out together to the same God. Abba Father. Man, that's good. Is that not good? Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself, He's emphasized, emphatic, testifies. What tense? Present tense, continually, right now, ongoing. The Spirit's ministry is with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit convinces you You don't convince somebody. The Spirit does. If you have people in your midst who are doubting, don't you try to convince them of anything. You take them to the Word of God. You let the Spirit of God speak to their soul and convince them that they are children of God or convince them that they're not. Your job is not to convince anybody of nothing about security, about doubting. If they have doubts, you say, well, why do you have doubts? Read this, read this. Is this true? What's the Spirit going to do, you see, in your soul? And the Spirit produces this this uh, the same affection that Jesus Christ has for the Father. The same filial adoration that the Son has for the Father, so too His children have for God. It's a product of the Spirit. It's the, it's the fruit of reconciliation according to Ephesians 2. So we better go back there. Ephesians 2. See, we're dealing with a living God. Not metaphoric ideas, not esoteric ideas, not Gnosticism. That's why a little kid can know God and someone who studies theology who's never converted doesn't ever come to know Him. You see? We're about a living God who comes into your life 
and he he starts vibrating. <laughs> he starts to change you. Right? And it starts in our text here that you are, verse 19 of Ephesians 2, the fruit of reconciliation is that you are fellow citizens in the same country with the saints. You are considered a saint set apart of God's kingdom. Second, you are indeed of God's family. Same privileges, not upper class, lower class with the Jews. You have the same privileges of sonship that anybody else has. The great privilege we have is then moved down into verse 20 through 22. Those last three verses will depict the third metaphor that describes the church's unity with this idea that we are both together the temple of God. In other words, we are together God's house. We are together God's house. This is amazing. Look at verse 20. Having been built... That's the only non-present tense verb in this section. Notice what it says. The household of God at the end of verse 19 comes into verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself. Having been, past tense, passively done, the family of God is built by God. Passive. You don't build it. Pastors don't build it. Having been built is something that happened to the household. God, of course, is the builder. Christ Jesus in Matthew 16 says, I will build my church. So that God is the builder of the household, of this building that we're now looking at in verse 20 and on. Having been built on the foundation. The foundation, of course, is the ground floor. The foundation of what? It says the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We take that to be uh, the apostles, of course, is the, uh, not counting Judas, would be the 11. Matthias replaced him. Paul, the 13th, is at least those 13 apostles. And what they taught, according to Acts 2.42, the apostles' doctrine is what the early church fed on and listened to. And the church is based on the teaching of the apostles. Okay, Not on them themselves. They're just men, but that which they spoke by the moving of the Holy Spirit. If you remember in John 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus says, The Helper will come and He'll remind you of everything that I told you. So these apostles, when they taught, when they wrote in particular, they were teaching doctrine. As it, as it pointed to Jesus Christ, as it explained out the gospel, and the, the family of God rests on that foundation and no other foundation. Okay? The prophets we take here, not as Old Testament prophets, certainly the order of things, apostles, prophets. These are New Testament prophets. We learn from um, 1 Corinthians, and we learn from here in Ephesians and other places that there were prophets. Prophets spoke divine revelation, that they spoke directly from God, the message that God wanted. And then they spoke that truth in the early church. What they taught and the apostles obviously would not contradict. It's from the same Holy Spirit, and that is the foundation. Those truths, and we could probably say, summarize it as New Testament revelation. That's the foundation on which... The church sets, the family sets. Who ties it all together? Look at verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's fascinating. I just love how things work out here. 
Christ Jesus, and then he emphasizes with the word himself. He's done that before, earlier. It would make sense if he just took himself out of there and read it like this, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But he puts himself there. Christ Jesus himself. Obviously, he's emphasizing something. Christ Jesus alone. Christ Jesus solo. Christ Jesus and no other are the cornerstone. He shares this with nobody. He's emphatic here. Okay, um, There's been a lot of folks throughout church history who try to come and be the head of the church and change the church and be the cornerstone. There's only one cornerstone. right? Um, there's only one foundation to be laid. It's through the apostles. God commissioned, God chosen, God gifted apostles and prophets. And notice its foundation. And through our Wednesday and Saturday morning studies, right, as we were emphasizing bibliology, you would have, if you were with us, you would have learned that the foundation comes every floor? No. This is the foundation. There's no foundation right there. So why does he use the language, right? He's giving us understanding. We all understand the foundation's the bottom. And once you lay the foundation, do you have to lay the foundation again? No. So do you see what the emphasis is? Once the apostles and prophets came, there's no more foundation, there's no more revelation, there's no more, there's a cessation of the revelatory gifts that were given to the apostles. There's no more divine revelation to be spoken. We have the scripture, the foundations laid, and the cornerstone that ties it all together is Christ Jesus himself. The word cornerstone comes from a word that they would use in the first century. They would pick the perfect stone that had the perfect measurements because it tied everything together. And they measured the building off of the perfection of this stone. So the stability of the building was directly related to the quality of the cornerstone. That's why it had to be the best stone. Okay, Christ Jesus, of course, fits the bill. He is perfect in all his ways. It fulfills Isaiah 28, 16, when God says that in Zion, I'm going to lay the cornerstone, who is to be the foundation. Okay. Later on in Psalm 118, 22, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Okay. So this is fulfilling that. This is in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish scriptures. They would say, wow, that sounds like Isaiah 28. That sounds like Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what Yahweh was speaking back in there. Right? He is that perfect cornerstone. And if you look again, because we're into, into verbs and stuff in verse 20, look at what it says. Christ Jesus himself. What's the next word say in your text? Being. What tense is that? Present tense. Constantly, continually, currently, ongoing, habitually, Jesus Christ is cornerstone. Okay? But notice you compare that with the first verb in verse 20, having been built. The church was began, having been built. It's already happened. It began in Acts 2 at Pentecost in the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church was being built there. That's been already established. Jesus Christ, though, in verse 20, is the constant cornerstone. He's not going to wear out and they're not going to find a new one. Verse 21, he goes on to show this building that God is building, that we're all united in as Christians. In verse 21, look at what he says here. He says, In whom, that is the cornerstone, who is Christ Jesus, the whole building, notice solo, the entire building is seen as entire, not little fractions, but the whole building, in 21, 
is what? Being fitted together. Being fitted together. What tense do you think that is? (laughs) Present tense. This is an ongoing activity. God is constantly, presently fitting together those who make up the building. And who is that? Christians. According to 1 Corinthians 12, right? The Spirit Himself gifts as He wills for just the right purpose and just the right place. So look at how, how, how intricate this is, how perfect this is, how hands-on this is. 21, he says, in whom in Christ Jesus the whole building is being fitted together. It's, it, 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 it's, it's constantly being put together and it has this idea then as a result of this being fit together, notice, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, so the activity of taking and fitting, it reminds me of little kids playing with the Legos, right? And they fit them together, and as they add and as they build, guess what? It starts to grow and build. This is what he's talking about. He says, as God is fitting together constantly those who make up this building, he's adding to the numbers those who are being saved. He's fitting them. That means he's, he's shaping, molding just perfectly to fit into this niche that he's designed. You see, that is fascinating. We learned that when Max is going through spiritual gifts and all the different, all the different color shades that the Spirit gifts each individual. You are no, you are, uh, you are not like any other Christian. You are not like any other Christian. And your giftedness by the Spirit of God, according to those passages, says that the Spirit of God, according to the sovereign will of God, is, is gifted you just perfectly to fit into the wall of the church. To serve His church as He's gifted you. That's what He's saying here. Jew and Gentile together are being fitted together perfectly and is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You know what's really cool here is this word, being fitted together is used outside of the Bible. They found this same word used in architecture where it spoke of the builders of the mosaics, that the, the floor with all the tiles. This word was used. The guy that built the mosaics would take a tile, sand it, file it just perfectly, and fit it right there. He didn't just throw it out there and hope it landed, Right? That word is used here of how God takes you and files you and molds you and makes you to fit into his building. And what is the goal of God in verse 21? That this whole thing would grow into a holy, set-apart, sacred temple in the Lord. Wow. Now what's really cool, because we're into words, right? The word temple here is not the word used... That speaks of like the the grandiose temple of God in Jerusalem as a whole. This word here speaks of the inner sanctuary of the temple. That's what he's emphasizing. In Ephesus, the Gentiles would have been aware of the, the temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, right? And so in their mind, okay, this word is used of the inner sanctum where they would commune with the deity. In Jerusalem, it was behind the Holy of Holies, Okay? The inner sanctuary where God's presence was. 
That's the word here. So what is God saying here through the apostle, moving him to use these words, is that God takes the individual Christian, molds them and fits them together, places them together, and as he does that, it starts to grow into a set-apart, sacred place of a holy sanctuary. And what is a sanctuary for? For the presence of God. Wow. God is building a presence for himself in his church. Awesome. Now, go to 22. He takes that general statement there, and then he brings it down in verse 22. Notice how he says, you also. In whom you also... So he takes the general teaching of 21 and applies it to them personally, and we can apply it to us as well, where it says this, In whom you also, you in addition, are being built. That's another present tense verb. You are constantly, currently, right now, being built together into, notice, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Oh my goodness. The goal of the cross of Christ is to build God a temple for Him to dwell. Because this is the fruit of reconciliation. The result of the cross. God's purpose in sending His Son to suffer and die was that he then would come and take up residence in you. Not only as an individual, that is true, but Ephesians' emphasis is corporate, right? 1 Corinthians 3 talks about individual. This is corporate. God is building himself a place to dwell (laughs) in his people. Isn't that cool? Now, The word dwelling, you know how we've said before how the Greek language likes to pile on prepositions on the front. And they do that for a couple reasons. To change the word and invent a word, which Paul loves to do, or to really jack up the word that exists. They like to emphasize and and really push it on. He does this here. In the word dwell, he attaches a preposition. And the preposition has the idea of to settle down. Okay? So the idea here to dwell is to be comfortable, to be settled down in his people. He's comfortable in us. Through the cross of Christ, he has made you comfortable. That's fascinating. To dwell, a dwelling of God, a place where God is comfortable in the spirit. Obviously, he's talking of a spiritual house a spiritual dwelling. If you hold your finger here, and we'll be back very quickly, but go to 1 Peter 2. This is very similar language and similar verses. 1 Peter, um, actually it's 1, uh, first part of 2, sorry. 2, 4 and following. Look at the same kind of language here. And coming to Him, 2, 4, coming to Christ, He's the Him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. 
you also, you in addition, verse 5, as living stones are being built up as what? A spiritual house. For what purpose? A holy priesthood. And what will that do? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable, pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. And then he quotes these verses that we had mentioned earlier there in verse 6. He's talking there of Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value in seven then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, Jesus Christ, has become the very cornerstone. Verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We'll stop there. Now if you go back to Ephesians and put all this stuff together here, God is settled down at home and comfortable in each person in Christ. We are a living stone, chosen and carefully shaped by God and honed to fit perfectly in the building just as the builder has decided. And together God is constantly building for Himself a place to reside on this planet. Think of this. In ancient Israel, God designed and had Moses build the tabernacle. If you remember, in the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch was primary, or the tabernacle was primarily a place where he would dwell amongst his people. Okay? He removed them out of Egypt, brought them in to the, the, the wandering around, right? How will they come and approach God? He set up the tabernacle as a means by which he would dwell in their midst. And so behind the, the holy place there, above the ark and between the cherubim, God said, that's where my presence will be. That's in the tabernacle. The temple then being built by Solomon, same deal, behind the Holy of Holies is where God said, I will reside. That's where my presence will be. And how did you know, how did the Israelites know that God was home? What, 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 what did they see? Remember? Behind the, sometimes in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus 40, God showed something. Amen. Yes, the cloud and the radiant and the Shekinah glory was evidence that God was there, you see. So God, God's presence, he said, will be located there in that place specifically. The, omni, the omnipresent God says behind there specifically, I will make my presence known. That's where I, that's where I will reside. God then, it says in Scripture, sent His Son. And according to other Scriptures, in Colossians 2.9 is one of them, in Him all the fullness of deity, what? Dwells, present tense. When God took on flesh, God took up a residence in a person on the planet. So you had the tabernacle, you have the temple, you have Jesus Christ who said in John 2, you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. Right? Speaking of, he is, the, he is the residence of God. If you see me, you've seen God, he told Philip in John 14, 9. That's fascinating. Now think of this. Since the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension... Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit, since that time, God has taken up residence in His church. 
that's just stunning. Absolutely stunning. And especially when you think that the Old Covenant Jews had a huge barrier that kept them from the presence of God. And if they were to venture behind there, what would happen to them? They'd get killed. Well, now in Christ, God indwells me. And He's comfortable with us. He's happy to reside in you. And frankly, I'm no better and probably much worse than a lot of Old Covenant Jews. And yet grace has said through the cross of Christ, I can come and dwell with you and in you. Okay, Now, God dwells within us individually. He dwells within His church corporately. According to our text here, this is the goal, this is the fruit, this is the purpose of reconciliation. God has come to suffer and die to pay your penalty so that He could come and take up residence in you. I don't know about you, but that makes me kind of happy. Right? Now, I want to finish by looking at a couple verses here and then I'll leave you alone. But this is quite, quite amazing here. Look at Ephesians. If you're in Ephesians, look at 3.17. And we'll go rapid fire here. 3.17 says, so that, the result here of, of what he says in 16, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend in verse 18. So here is the, the prayer and the result in 17 is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Your heart, your inner person, is the inner sanctuary of the living God. No longer a temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> All right. Look at what's Galatians. Go to, to the left to the Galatians real quick, please. Galatians 2. I have been... 2.20... 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives, present tense, in me. Currently, constantly, continually lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My emphasis, obviously, in the middle there is that Christ dwells. Christ has taken up residence and lives actively in the Apostle Paul. And all those who believe in Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians, please, to the left of Galatians, 2 Corinthians 6. And this is uh, in verse 14 and following. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15, What harmony has Christ with Belial? Another word for devil. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? All those questions demand the answer. Nothing. Nobody. Verse 16, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? False gods. For we are what? The temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, and then he'll quote here from Old Covenant, God will dwell in them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. 17, therefore come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Why? Because you're the temple of God. Yeah? And I will welcome you. 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. How about um, 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 6. 6.19. How about 18 and 19? Because it, it's connected together. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19 says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple, or more precisely, an inner sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We won't go there, but 1 Corinthians 3.16 says basically the same thing. But how about if we uh, made it um, almost done here. John 14. John 14. Jesus spoke this way in his in his uh, last night before his crucifixion as he was teaching his disciples. In John 14, he says some really cool stuff. But verse 23, look at what he says. Verse 23, John 14. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And then look, And we will come to him and make our, what does your text say? Our dwelling, our abode with him. There's a promise by Christ to these disciples to be indwelt by God. You are an inner sanctuary of the living God. God resides both in believing Jews and Gentiles equally, permanently, presently, continually. He he will never do as He did to the temple in Israel, depart. It will never be said Ichabod to the Christian. Right? It will never be said You are continually indwelt by Him. Last text I want you to look at is 1 John 4. Now when Jesus said to look at Him was to see God because He was the resident of God. God had took up residence in Him. Okay? And therefore, to see, Jesus, to see Jesus was to see God the Father. Okay? And He says that many times. We are now the house of God. Look at 1 John 4 and look at 12. Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, that's a practice, right? An action. What does the next verse say? Or next uh, phrase, sorry. God abides, remains in us. And his love is perfected in us. Why does he start the verse with no one has seen God at any time? What a strange connection. Do you see where he's going here? The invisible God has taken up residence in his people. And he is made known when his people love like he loves. In the context of 1 John. So when we love one another in the way God has loved us, we are given manifestation to the invisible God. And so, like, to look at Christ is to see the Father. To look at the church that practices agape is to see God. Beloved, we are the temple of God. Let that soak in. Let that just resonate with your soul. That God has chosen this. 
His son died to accomplish this. And you and I together are equally a citizen in his kingdom, equally a child in his family, and equally a part of his house in which he dwells. All glory to him. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its precision. I ask that you take my feeble attempts, Lord, please, and use it for your glory. I know nothing can thwart your purposes. So come and unite us in these truths. Inflame our hearts to the reality that these are true of us. We are in your kingdom. We are in your family. Indeed, you dwell in us. And all this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.